The title will be decided for Big Show will defend against Triple H. Big Show just caught Trible H. Oh, blow! There was a low blow by Triple H! And now the pedigree! The pedigree! He got it! He got it! Triple H has won the World Wrestling Federation Championship! The McMahon Helmsley era is running the show. I'm here tonight to tell you flat out that I think the McMahon Helmsley era kind of sucks. Oh, look out! Triple H, DX, they're all over mankind! That's what he deserved! He brought it on himself! Nick, you're fired! He is fired! You're out of here! You're history! And thanks to the McMahon Helms the Air, mankind is fired! I just think that it's damn pretentious of Triple H and Stephanie to just finish a career. They personally get off on playing with people's lives with their dreams and their emotions and in this case with, with their family you're the most pathetic person i have ever met in my life that's not mick foley i've been pathetic for my whole life especially over the last couple weeks i can get hit in the head 37 times with a chair and not have any not, not have any not have any damage you stank stank you stank in the joint up Triple H and Stephanie, if you do not meet our demands, we've got every single superstar ready to walk out on your candy asses. You will reinstate Mick Foley now. Mick Foley's back! You want me at the Garden? You want me at the Rumble? You're damn right I want your ass at the Rumble. You got it! Mankind and Triple H back in the ring. The two men that will meet for the richest prize in the game at the Royal Rumble. Triple H's got that He's belt! Got the belt. He's got the belt! Oh! After the beating you gave me on Monday night, one thing mankind is not is ready to face you in a street fight at the Royal Rumble in Madison Square Garden. But I think the WWE fans deserve a substitute in that match. I think you know the guy. His name is Cactus Jack. Cactus Jack is back. Drastic times call for drastic measures. Triple H forced Nick Foley to metamorphosize into Cactus Jack. This guy's psychotic. He's homicidal. What I am is one bad son of a bitch. Cactus Jack is as hardcore as anybody could ever be. Mick Foley, your blood will stain New York City. I promise you that. With the Royal Rumble, you're gonna make me bleed. It will not be the first time, and it sure as hell will not be the last. And for a man that has wrestled on nails in barbed wire, this will be a day at Central Park. Do you think Triple H knows what the hell he's gotten himself into for the Royal Rumble? You look into my eyes and realize I'm gonna tear you apart in New York City. So, where were we? Ah, yes. The street fight, Triple H versus Cactus Jack for the WF Championship. Uh, one hell of a promo package, you know, one more deserving of a promo package than the fucking tag team match we just had to through. And what's interesting is that, weirdly, the, the promo package kind of reverses the order in which some of the events actually happened. Uh, as we're in through, I'll give one or two things more context as somebody who's watched the last uh, six weeks. Uh, weirdly, this makes it seem like Triple H won the title 
and then Mick Foley kind of stood up to him when actually, I think it may have been like, remember the time of the second episode United make where Mick Foley came out on the Raw to take a stand up to, to Triple H and Stephanie so before Triple H won, won the belt back on like a Christmas episode and then as his punishment on that night, Mick Foley got put into a boiler room brawl against, against a bunch of different guys dressed as Santa which which culminated in him getting uh, hit with a loaded sack by Triple H who was also dressed as Santa and Triple H with the immortal line of and I heard him exclaim as he rode out of sight I've got two words for all suck it <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, it shows like Mick Foley getting fired but it doesn't it, they seem to leave out the fact that on the final Raw of 99 it came in a case of a pink slip on a pole match between The Rock and Mick Foley which The Rock uh, won and then later on that night despite being fired Triple H had a title match against the big show where I thought oh is this where he wins the belt back no Mick Foley came out of the crowd cost Triple H the title and then on the first Raw of 2000 that's where Triple H won the title and uh, weirdly even though it's only a minor bit of this package they show the, the interactions with fake mankind played by uh, played by Midian who actually on the first two episodes of uh, of 2000 was actually one of the highlights of the, the show like the first Smackdown of 2000 had uh, fake mankind wandering around Universal Studios and like it was a point where he goes on to the Back to the Future where he goes oh, I guess I'll go back in time to when my wife last found me attractive and then when he comes out of the, the ride, he's greeted he's greeted by by real mankind who just beats the shit out of him. And, and then obviously, I, as we, as we see that the big segment with all the wrestlers threatening uh, one strike led by the Rock, if Mick Foley wasn't reinstated, which is what then was, uh, in that segment the Rock also called a bunch of the guys to ponies because he said he was going to win the Rumble, which is why Big Show turned heel because Big Show got his feelings hurt. <laughs> oh, big show. I can hear the violins already. Oh dear, so um, I don't know what shocks me more: Big Show turning heel, or the fact that Dennis Knight as Midian was a highlight of the day. He was, and like because Kane and Tori have been doing this weird thing ever since Tori was forced to spend the holidays with Xbox. That every time a guy just kind of looks wrongly in her direction, or she hears that somebody said something about her. She decides to came after them. So there's something that you didn't actually get to see is where uh, Mankind, when he got reinstated, tortured Midian kind and like, left him tied up in a locker room and then basically went up to Tori and said a bunch of inappropriate things to her. He went, oh, by the way, I'm in dressing room three. And then you realise, like, ah, oh, he's wanting to send Kane to go kill the fake Mankind. But you never actually get to see what Kane did to him, which I was, which I was sad at. And then, obviously, you had the iconic moment of... Uh, Mankind being so be other goes like I don't think Mankind can face you at Madison Square Garden in the floor reveal, but Cactus Jack can. Uh and like that episode of SmackDown where well, it was just it was a, it was just as bit as good as I hope to be when I actually watched the segment. Well it was annoying is that episode of SmackDown opened that segment and everything after it was just a disappointment by comparison. I actually still remember that original um reveal. I think it was like maybe the second week I ever was watching WWF. I think it was a SmackDown on Sky One, and I didn't know who Cactus Jack was. I was still learning about mankind, but I will say that during the reveal, just purely by how much Triple H sold it, I knew like Cactus Jack must be 
such a dangerous creature to some degrees and that sort of thing. The, it, it was literally like um, when trying to make every episode assess- accessible to new fans. I was a new fan who knew nothing about Captain Jack, Mankind, Triple H, the whole thing, and I was still invested when I saw that first reveal. It was that well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Like, I kind of knew who Captain Jack was like, watching, when I watched this match back for the first time because like 2004 was a big year for me watching wrestling. And I remember when Mick Floyd came back for the street with Orton, he had kind of kept Jack shirt on during their big like street fight at Backlash, so I kind of knew that like one of his different personas was was Cactus Jack, and like I've heard like Jim Smallman, I think he may have mentioned in his book that he wrote about the history of wrestling that he's once one time he said to a wrestler at Progress like how we want them to sell something, uh, I want you to react as it much like Triple H reacted when he saw Cactus Jack in 2000. That's the mm. the level of. Like how memorable this moment is in Triple H, how well he sold like seeing Cactus Jack. Yeah, I, I, I mentioned that. I can't like um, we went, on, when I think when we were talking about the open, and that like that that I that was the exact line that I read, and that just sticks to me. And I mean, uh, rewatching the promo package, it re- it's, it's phenomenal. Hmm. Yeah, it really like encapsulates this this whole feud uh, perfectly, and just. Although, like, people forget that uh, Madison Square Garden in 97 on an episode of Raw is where Kattachuk first properly showed up in the WWF and it was against Triple H. So, and also, for some people who have been watching longer, you realise, like, there's a reason Triple H is, is scared because he's been in the ring with Kattachuk and MSG before. And it didn't work out for him then, so he knows now what he's in for. And, like, this feud is really already, before the match even happens, has already done a lot for Triple H because um, you know we talked about the the Vince feud and yeah we had made our jokes about the fact that fucking the word personal was said about forty times an episode. Oh, I just forgot forgot that word and now you brought it back again for fuck's sake. God, that was all we heard for about two weeks. I swear. <laughs> but like before that feud, though, like Triple H was being positioned as the guy. He didn't feel like the guy. He's like. He had him lose the title on the fourth ever episode of uh, of SmackDown to Vince, and the title gets vacated, only for Triple H to win it back in the sixth back at Unforgiven. But the show ends with Austin Stunner in him, and then like, he defends the title Rebellion, and the UK against The Rock retains it. But the ending is more about uh, Vince being angry at the Bulldog because he threw a bin at Stephanie. <laughs> and, then, and then he and Austin had that match at, at No Mercy, uh, and randomly, what I remember about No Mercy is like, China wins the IC title of that show and then suddenly disassociates herself with Triple H just after that with no explanation. Because like, even on the SmackDown before No Mercy, these two conspired to trick Steve Austin and lure him into a beatdown. And then suddenly they're just not associated anymore. And it was just weird. Uh, so then DX reform as this new heel faction for Triple H. And then you have the match where Brigham Big Show beats him for the belt. It's only with the, the Vince feud, and then he aligns himself with Stephanie. They're running the show, and now this feud with Foley. He already probably just felt more like a heel in the last month and a half than he has like everything else he did in '99. Uh, if you compare, it especially to when we were watching the episodes of where um, he was beating up um, Joe Briscoe and Pat Patterson, and he just looked quite slightly ineffectual. 
like he like the main thing he was doing was beating up old men it's like that's not a great way to present your heel whereas the video package and the feud with Cactus Jack in the lead up presented Triple H much much better even though he you saw the bit where he was afraid of the reveal the fact that during the actual promo package he's talking about how he's going to make Cactus Jack bleed shows that um, he's battling for his fear and it just presents him a lot better than anything else we'd seen before then it was like Triple H saw this as the opportunity to finally demonstrate that he is a main event and he deserves to be in this position. And this was probably one of the biggest matches in his career in terms of uh, making that transition. Mm. Uh, Something I didn't uh, get to mention uh, on this, on the go home episode of SmackDown, but I thought I should mention it here is that Mick Foley like had a feeling that his career was kind of winding down. And so wanted to have like one last like memorable food and hell by young guy on the way out. And he wanted to bring the back to Cactus Jack persona, but uh, what reminded me of this was on the goal, Matt doing Triple H showed the replay of like when the Rock hit all those unprotected chair shots on Foley from the previous year's Rumble when his hands were and just behind his back. And Triple H was there like your kids watch that and they cry, but you should, the kids shouldn't watch the Rumble this year because what I'm going to do is going to make that make that what happened last year pale by comparison and everything. And it reminded me that Mick Foley, when he when he suggested like bringing back, he wanted to come back as a heel and feud with The Rock and use a heel Cactus Jack to get The Rock over. And he, he, he apparently his motivation was going to be the fact that in real life The Rock really wasn't didn't really say much to Mick Foley on the night of the Rumble after all those chair shots. Then for a while, Foley prepared uh, some resentment towards The Rock. Uh, and he, he mentions it in like his book in like a bonus chapter, the original like paperback of Have a Nice Day. But apparently Vince and Rock were kind of they were for it, but then they realised like, but isn't this going to make people hate the Rock though and say with you because you have a legit reason to be angry with them? And then Vince suggested like, why don't you feud with Triple H? So basically, fully got what he wanted. Vince said it was face cut the check being used to help elevate Triple H. I would definitely say out of the two of them that The Rock wouldn't have needed elevating by Cactus Jack or Mick Foley at all. Uh, The Rock was already in a strong enough position. By this point, um, Steve Austin wasn't really being missed, I don't think, for me personally, because The Rock was that main eventer who could take the company on his shoulders but they needed that other person to stand opposite The Rock. And if Mick Foley was going to be transitioning out of the business, retiring, and you were unlikely to see Steve Austin for quite a while, Undertaker doesn't come back until May, pretty much Triple H was the one they needed to put over to make a legitimate threat to The Rock. So I can't believe I'm about to say it, but I think Vince McMahon was right. I think (laughs) Vince McMahon made a good fucking call because... The Rock in Mankind may seem like, or The Rock in Cat the Strap may seem like the bigger match, but what does it actually gain? And I don't think it would gain anything as much as what Triple H versus Cactus Jack would gain, because you could quite easily say that these two matches are ones that allowed Triple H to coast in some of the later years because he had proven that he was a main event star because of these matches. So Vince made the right call, shock number one, um, and you got the opportunity to see Cactus Jack versus Triple H in a much more interesting match with 
much better differences between them than if you'd had Cactus Jack versus the Rock with the uh, Rock as babyface, Cactus Jack as heel, but with a legitimate cause. So it's a good decision all round. Mm-hmm. Don't disagree with any of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I can see where McFoley was coming from. Cause like In 2000, the Rock is the guy now, especially given that Austin's not here. And you think about it, watching it back in November when the Rock and Sock briefly split up because uh, Foley thought the Rock crashed his book and that promo that Foley cuts on him that night and calls him a selfish son of a bitch, calls him Dwayne. And at one point, when I don't think anybody had acknowledged the Rock's like, real name by that point. And so like, it felt like back then, I think around that time is when Foley's pitching it, so you can tell maybe C to be implied just in case they go for it. But mm. I think by like, December, Vince had decided, like, no, like, how about Triple H? Well, this thing with Triple H, because I think it's better suited to, to Foley, because it's, it's similar to what he would go on to do with Orton and with Edge. But I think he did. He started it here with with uh, Triple H. But getting to the match like itself, like JR obviously brings up the fact, oh, as a young oh, man, he hitchhiked to Madison Square Garden to see his hero, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, that hasn't aged poorly at all. And now he's here in the Garden with an opportunity to become the WF champion. And it's quite good that this already feels like a fight just from the offset. No point does it feel like just a wrestling match. It's just a 25 mm-hmm. minute fight, which is what it should be because, like, you had the last two weeks of basically both of them basically the crooks of their promos being like, oh, we're both going to have to go to places we don't like, or it's places we're going to have to go deep inside us and a new level of violence in order to beat the other. And then you had that promo package with like knowledge, like Captain Jack's time and, uh, in Japan and the death matches and Triple H, how violent he can be. Because like, if he started it with fucking wrist locks and that, it would not have <laughs> matched the belt. Or well, like an Ambrose versus Rollins grudge match, by any chance. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, like, what I love is that Triple H takes a chair shot and a, a ring bell shot like, within the first few minutes and yet seems to just like shake it off and doesn't even slow him down all that much. They go with a crowd brawl uh, and they're fighting up near the the small entranceway, and there's like a suplex on the the wooden bunch of wooden pallets that are set up near the the entrance, and like there's also a two by four wrapped in barbed wire, which I think you'd see like repeated. Hopefully, would occasionally bring that out again, like uh, in later matches. I think like each match with Orton that I mentioned, he brought that out. But I don't think we'd ever actually seen anything like a two by four wrapped in barbed wire, especially not in the WWF. At this point, I think I may have seen it in ECW, but I don't think you've ever seen anything like that in WBF. I think, if I remember correctly from reading Mick Foley's autobiography, I think um, back when he was in ECW, he was using something like this. And that was specifically because he was able to attach a towel to it, which would set it on fire. And I think it was a match uh, when he was wrestling alongside Raven against Tommy Dreamer and Terry Funk. Um, he removed the fire portion of it because the towel flung off and accidentally set Terry Funk on fire. So um, he stuck to just the barbed wire around the two by four. And in 2000, at this point, despite the fact that it was still the technically a bit of the attitude era, I don't think, as you said, they'd ever seen anything like that on such a huge um, scale. It was purely ECW mm-hmm. and the and the death matches and that sort of thing. You would see it, but not in Madison Square Garden and WWF. So the reaction as soon as he brings it out 
is quite massive and that you can almost feel the changing of the match in that moment is that now we're going to get down and down and dirty and serious you know mm-hmm. yeah a lot of people involved with ECW kind of talk about especially him and how WWE's like attitude they took a, quite a bit of influence from ECW even though I don't think a lot of people in WWE would, uh, would admit that but like this show feels has a real ECW feel in a lot of the, the matches. Like you have Taz coming out fresh from ECW every chance ECW. There was ECW chance during the tables match with the Dudleys and the Hardys. Also you got Mick Foley who also had a short but memorable run in ECW and this like street fight. So there is an ECW kind of feel to this show, if you think if you think about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, can, you like like you say, you can definitely see where WWE took a lot of influence. I know, obviously, they took a lot of influence from ECW, whether they admit that or not, within the Attitude Era. And obviously, it was just a more watered-down version of what ECW were doing. But like you say, within this pay-per-view, there's so many different elements, kind of that chaotic car crash style anything can happen must watch the tv that they 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 did lift from ecw you you can you can see it quite 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 well within this Mm. Mm -hmm. i mean like um ecw were always good at having that edge the difference would be is that ecw were very good at the stories outside of the ring creating the build-up uh utilizing everyone to their main strengths but, and this is probably going to be slightly blasphemous to some people, um, a lot of the ECW hardcore matches didn't, round about this time, no longer really had that story element involved in the actual match itself. Always were done on the outside in build-up to it, and the matches themselves, uh, hardcore-wise, could be quite generic and samey. It's only like certain standouts like Jerry Lynn and Rob Van Dam who was able to bring something different to it. Whereas, and I cannot believe how complimentary I'm being to Vince McMahon in this bloody <laughs> podcast, but the hardcore-style elements to this show, even though it has an ECW feel, still has that WWF storytelling in the matches themselves. If you look at the tables matches, the way that it's um it's it's set out, there's definitely a story going throughout of um building up the knowledge and understanding of a table match and then starting to actually have people going through them. In this match, there's a tale to it as well. It's a very good story, um, which didn't necessarily always translate well in ECW. So it's a case of not only did WWF very obviously take elements from ecw but to some degree they, there are some elements where they bettered it because they were able to give meaning to every action whereas in ecw sometimes it wouldn't necessarily have that mm-hmm. it, what was weird is at one point like, they're bringing the barbed wire back you know they're they're using it they're using it to like the gut shots and then for some reason the referee suddenly gets involved and like tries to take the the barbed wire away like yeah like, just like someone on the outside, use a chair and smash them in the head as many times as you want. But no, I just, Errol Hebner has to step in and take away this, this barbed wire bat. And then, for whatever reason, he gives it to Hugo Savinovich over at the, the Spanish and table. The fans boo also the barbed wire bat being a uh, two by four thing getting taken away. And for whatever reason, they say, like, what about Hugo? Just looks like, what am I meant to do with this? And he just hides it under his table. 
And then when Jack gets back up, he just grabs Earl Hebner and asks where the hell it is. So Earl uh, easily just grasses up like, "What's well, over there by the end table?" And when Hugo <laughs> won't give it up, won't give it up, he just punches him in the face. Poor Hugo, he just got involved. Like Earl just throws him completely under the bus after setting him up. Is so so bad of him to do, but. Um, I do. I always love the image of like Hugo holding the bat in his hand as if he's been given something mystical, and he's just like, "What do I do with it?" And just puts it underneath the table. It's just—it's a great moment that I just always love whenever I see this match. And then Catless Jack just beats the crap out of him. So <laughs> standard. Yeah. Nobody was safe in the. Nobody was safe in the attitude era. No, that's absolutely true. To be fair, so um, I'm surprised he was willing to take the uh, the. Um, two by four in the first place. I mean, it's not, if, it's, if it wasn't bad enough that every seem like every show somebody gets put through their table, uh, somebody they're getting physically assaulted. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's uh, it's like the, when they did SummerSlam a couple of years earlier in NXT, but they, there's a like there's very like when Undertaker they die to the outside and they go through the SmackDown table, you just see Hugo slowly like his chair fucking tumbling over and he's going back, backwards. So Hugo doesn't have much luck over in a. Uh, an MSG that fully gets the, the barbed wire back, back and he uses it to the face of Triple H which gets a big cheer and this like Triple H has like got that proverbial crimson message like JR likes to say and like this was a big thing if you're a fan of like 2000s WWE you know Triple H loves to bleed and big matches I think because he's such a Flair fan and that was like, a big thing like Flair also like always took an opportunity to, to bleed <laughs> I'm pretty sure uh, Ric Flair couldn't get out of the shower room without accidentally um, spilling blood or something like that. So it's never a surprise uh, when Flair used to uh, start bleeding. And it's not a surprise when you see Triple H because of how inspired he always was by the NWA style, which would have that grittiness to it in the main event. So, again, doesn't surprise me at all. But thankfully, at least in this example, it has meaning to it that he's bleeding it wouldn't be the, like it wouldn't be the same without it it creates such iconic imagery because of it yeah and also like, even though like you basically they do it as safely as you can basically have somebody yeah, with a two by four with barbed wire in their face but like you gotta think also everybody knows how sharp barbed wire is so like realistically if you're sitting and watching he's like this guy just got hit in the face with sharp barbed wire if he wasn't bleeding then you'd be like hang on a second and then you got to think, obviously, realistically, you can think, oh, he probably got nicked by the barbed wire, and that's why he's he's bleeding and everything. And, well, they go out to the announce table, I think, forget to try a pile driver on it, but Triple H manages to set a backdrop. And, like, you can just see, like, Triple H kind of falls down, and he's getting blood all over the table. He's getting blood over JR and King's notes. <laughs> and then a fun callback to it last year, Triple H does handcuff Cactus Jag. Luckily, he doesn't have to take as many chair shots as he did last year. And so I've also thinking like it's the rock that comes out and makes the save, obviously to help Mick Foley. It doesn't it doesn't offer him a key or anything. He gets a random cop to come out and uncuff him, which I'm still waiting for an explanation. Where the hell did that cop come from and how did he have a key to that specific pair of handcuffs? But maybe I'm looking too far into it. Quite possibly, mate. It, well, I mean, it was a strange one, but again, attitude era, you just expect shit like that, don't you? <laughs> it, maybe it was Terry Funk in disguise uh, and we just didn't realise because they didn't do a close up I could believe that <laughs> yeah but then you go back into the, the ring 
and this is where I think the most infamous part of this match comes in, where they've got like the thumbtacks, which for her, some reason I've just noticed it here on my notes that I've typed out. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, tax has been all corrected to tackles, so I've got backdrop <laughs> onto the tackles. <laughs> <laughs> makes it makes it a bit of a different match. Yeah, uh, I would I would wa- I would watch that match just to see what happens. But um, that, <laughs> I love I mean, that. P- That's brilliant. PWG have done similar spots with tags, but used gummy bears instead. So you know anything's possible. <laughs> yeah. Let's get the Lego out as well, because the Lego is the most dangerous of all things to fall on. <laughs> yeah, like Mick Foley brings it like the, the bag of like thumbtacks. You even have Stephanie coming out because, like, she originally, you know, like what you mentioned like earlier about we mentioned in part one about uh, Terry and that, like, just the oh, like, however, like, the Hardys come out themselves, but oh, Terry's not coming out with them, we don't need that shit promo earlier on. Triple H came out with Stephanie and then kind of gave her a look, and she got nodded and then went, went backstage. See, they basically did their what the bloody Hardys should have done with Terry. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And I think um, I always love that little beat of where Stephanie comes out with Triple H. And you can even see at the time you've got Captain Jack in, in the ring and you've got like Earl Hebner sort of holding him back. Um, and during the moment where Triple H is walking around, because of the way of the light flashing, Captain Jack looks almost demonic. He looks like the most terrifying thing you could possibly see in the ring. And it makes sense that at that moment, it's almost like a silent moment between Triple H and Stephanie and Stephanie goes backstage and that shows how different the match is already because Stephanie normally would stay out for however long she needs to but this is such a dangerous match that she that she goes back straight after she's come out shown support and then she's getting the fuck out of there and that's it and then Triple H is gonna have to deal with it himself but it also means he won't have be distracted and it's those little character moments at the very beginning of the match that really adds to the overall quality of it because it gives reason it gives motivation it gives context to everything and then whatever comes after that just builds on top of it so when you have stephanie come out at this point it matters it means something and I, it's one of the few times that having Stephanie interfere or come out for a match is a positive thing because it speaks to the story more. And I love those those little inclusions and character moments. Because mm-hmm. uh, like, originally, like, again, as I said, she came out and she went back to the event. She comes out when the thumbtacks come in, kept trying to kind of beg off Cactus Jack. I had a real bit of drama in the situation. And then we have the backdrop on from on where Paul gets backdrop onto the attacks. And like what's weird is that he gets backdropped and he doesn't get that many, but then he rolls over he's rolling into more attacks. You guys think it's gotta be a bit so it's a pedigree, he kicks out and then well, I think it's one of the more dangerous the most dangerous spot and I think most memorable spot in this entire match is when Triple H sets a pedigree onto the tax. Which is enough to get when you got you see the fucking tags afterwards sticking into Triple H's his boots, and in twenty six minutes fifty five, uh, Triple H retains over Mick Foley, and I'll go to you first, mate. I think not sure about Foley. I think this will be up there, but for Triple H, I think it's one of his best matches in his entire career. Don't disagree with that. I can't disagree either. I've, and I would say, to be fair, I think even um, Mick Foley would consider this up there easily in his top 10 in terms of overall 
um, contribution and impact. Um, it, it's a match that, to me, made Triple H a star. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely one of his best matches. Agree. Yeah. And like, Triple H being on that bleed scan instead of cat, this, uh, I thought, I was, at first I was too confused about it, but I think about what they're trying to do is that even though the, the bad guy won in a case of like, present Triple H as a main eventer and the case of like, the defense kind of begrudgingly respect Triple H and that like, you don't like him, but hell, he went through a lot from Curtis Jack. We know like, like hardcore fans, like we know what Curtis Jack's capable of, and that guy took Curtis Jack's best, and he still managed to go, and he had to be stretchered out, but he's still the champion, so they kind of have that wee bit of respect, even though they don't like Triple H, and especially, like, obviously having them have this match in front of a New York crowd, kind of the home of an MSG, the home of the WWF, and, like, in front of a hardcore crowd to have, like, this guy's basically his, one of his crowning moments as a, a main eventer, and I think this would help set up Triple H going forward and later use basically as this remorseless character who'll do anything, he'll use any sort of tactic to kind of stay on top. You know, he just doesn't care how violent he has to be. Like, And this is before he started using the sledgehammer on a regular basis. I don't think that comes in until sometime in 01, maybe 02. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, it's the imagery of him being on the stretcher is almost reminiscent of a survivor victim uh, at the end of a horror movie like the 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 jason Voorhees or michael myers or whatever has been vanquished and their the survivors left in like with their blood and their anguish and horror and they're having to be saved because they didn't win they survived and that's the major difference and it even has that horror movie aspect to it when Cactus Jack rises back up and attacks him again. So it gives just enough hints to a rematch could occur. Um, but it's also, it puts across the toughness of Cactus Jack. It puts across the toughness of Triple H. And it it just works. It works so brilliantly. I, I There's so much I love about this match. For me, this match sets the standard for all street fights is it not only has the blood and the violence but the psychology and the storytelling to it i think is just top-notch material all the way through hmm. uh, so then we have like, probably goes to get stretched out but then he gets uh, dragged back to the ring like yeah this guy commandeers the stretcher sends it back to him beats him up a bit more and then we have this weirdly prolonged like cut back and forth between stephanie kind of just staring at the ring and Cactus Chad is looking happy we still. Uh, before we go on, you guys got any final thoughts on this, this match? Anything you haven't said, Mike? I, I mean, there's nothing more that really can be added. Like like you guys, like Sam said a second ago, it sets the, it sets the mark for um, for street fight matches. I mean, I, I love a hardcore fight. I love a hardcore match. I love death matches. I got, I'm all about, all about that. Um, and like, because it's got that that level of psychology in it as well, that's the key part of it. What what you can find with, and it's the same nowadays, even with kind of like spot fest matches. They're just spot spot spot. Where like all with like hardcore matches, just weapon shot, weapon shot, weapon shot. This actually had so many different layers to it, and it, it and obviously built up to being an absolute banger of a match. So yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, it is the match that I think a lot of people think about when they think of this pay-per-view, and rightfully so. 
as we just looked at. But uh, we cut to WAF New York earlier on. We had just Jonathan Coachman uh, just basically being swarmed by fans as he just talked about how happy and the atmosphere here at WAF New York. I think the camera stayed on him a couple of se- or they didn't cut back to even a couple of seconds longer than they were meant to because like he kind of smiles, he smiles through it even though all these, all these fans are swarming him. And uh, there's a brief couple of things where you kind of just see his face kind of changes. He's like, can I, can I move? Can I get away from these smelly New York fans? And like right before it goes back, as you can see, like I don't like being here amongst all these people. <laughs> but at this particular <laughs> moment, uh, he's interviewing the all, always beacon of positivity and charisma, Linda McMahon in WAF New York. <laughs> basically, she, she doesn't really say much. She just basically says like, she doesn't like, like the way Stephanie and that conduct themselves. And he's like, things are going to be handled the McMahon way. Well, Stephanie's handling it like a McMahon and we've seen how Vince handled things, so I don't think this is much different. <laughs> and if you feel so strong about Linda, where have you been the past six weeks? <laughs> I think she's obviously preparing herself for the biggest pop of her career, which will be in the year's time when she just stands up from a chair. So I ain't even no bad mouthing about Linda, considering she's gotten one of the biggest pops at WrestleMania any bugger has ever had. But this was a pointless interview, to be honest. It was yeah, it doesn't yeah. really matter at all in the long run. Um, the timing of it, I don't think it isn't even that great either, because. Obviously, they go, oh, it's after Stephanie and Triple H, but Linda had nothing to do with it. There was no context to Linda being involved apart from, oh, I'm a McMahon. And I feel like you could have almost, you you could have done away with the interview and probably given more, well, could have had a longer tag team match for one because that was 30 seconds of our lives that we didn't really need to dedicate to Linda McMahon. So, yeah, (laughs) this interview happened. It's it. It certainly does. Then uh, I think this is just stolen because we could, we get uh, a bit of uh, they're cleaning up kind of the ring. They're cleaning the thumbtacks at the ring. Even even after they clean the ring, there's still a bit of dried blood over the far side of the mat, which he spots several times during the rumble. But we get a randomly a recap of when Shawn Michaels like managed to survive in the '95 rumble because only one of his feet touched the floor. Um, I don't, don't know why they felt the need to, to show us this. I'm sure it won't come up later on. Because uh, they basically like, oh, remember it's both feet. Remember what Shawn Michaels did back in the back in '95, and then now we get we get basically the announcement that everybody waits for when they get to a Royal Rumble. We watch a Royal Rumble pay where Howard Finkel goes, "It is now time for the Royal Rumble," <laughs> and then he runs in the rules and everything. And uh, number one is D'Lo Brown. Uh, I'll basically get around, I'm going to go through the first five entrants, basically talk about what happens because. Number five is Rikishi, and I think that's where things get interesting. But I'll just quickly run through and then run through what happens with the first five, and then I'll open mm-hmm. to you guys. Number one is D'Lo Brown. Uh, number two is Grandmaster Sexy. Rich, dear Lawler's. Oh, whoever's number two has got basically an impossible task as well as number one. And then it comes Grandmaster like, oh, this is a bad deal for him. And DR perfectly just goes, some would say he got a bad break at birth. <laughs> I did find that a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, just basically saying like, "Oh, I remember he's your son, but you won't acknowledge it." Uh, and I just basically put down what happens in like the ninety odd seconds between Tivo and Grandmaster. Is this? They just wrestle. The fans are silent because literally they they don't really do anything. Like they occasionally go, "Oh, he's got to go over." Or they just basically wrestle a quick match before the next guy comes in. 
and the mm. crowd just like they get they're more excited in doing the countdown at this point and seeing who the next guy is going to be, and so they're just silent between while these guys are wrestling. Number three, headbanger Moss with a weird like Madonna like cones for some reason. You know, headbanger Moss, the first guy that the Rock says he's got to get by. Oh, well, and this is where Kai and I get involved for the first time because on Sunday he apparently Kai and I and Mean Street Posse were told. Oh yeah, we're, after originally being told they were going to be in the Rumble, they were told in Heat, yeah, you're not in the Rumble. And so they basically, I don't know what their goal is here, especially not when three guys have entered so far, they fuck up the Rumble. And so Taka and Finaki get easily disposed of. Gerald Lawler calls them Chinese, even though Jack repeatedly reminds them he's, they're Japanese. Uh, Christian comes out to his awful singles music, which if I hadn't heard him use before, I would have swore, sworn was like a network sub. I know it's not. Not much happens again. The crowd remains silent. They come alive though when Rikishi comes out. Rikishi gets the biggest pop of the Rumble so far. <laughs> it's not really a surprise. I think I was um, say, he, was, he, was, he was popular. It was it was it was the right sort of timing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, the only the only issue. So the so the first four. Let's be honest, are very underwhelming. Uh, Dilo Brown. And Grandmaster Sexy having just a pretty average wrestling match. You've got a solid mid carder who is caught like just floating around uh, in Dilo Brown, and then you've got Grandmaster Sexy who unfortunately is one of the most annoying human beings ever on this pay per view with his nor- with his stupid high pitched laugh, which makes me want to like tear my ears off. But not just that, he also was really sloppy in just a few minutes because I don't know whether you guys noticed he does a bulldog to D'Lo Brown that lands onto Mosh's left leg and for the next minute or two Mosh is limping around and struggling a little bit and it looks completely unplanned and just pure sloppiness from Grandmaster who's more concerned about making sure people notice him and I just... <laughs> like the first couple of minutes is just frustrating it doesn't it's not a good start to the rumble it doesn't set a good standard it's like it's like if you had kicked off with bloody apa versus new age outlaws then kurt angle and rather than kurt angle versus taz it gives nothing for the crowd to latch onto. Mm-hmm. Uh, i also what's annoying about this rumble it will happen several times throughout the, the rumble is that guys come out and then their music starts like they hear the after the after the countdown, and then suddenly they just appear from behind the silver like great entrance bit, and then their music hits, and like literally there's I think at one point I can't remember who it is, but one guy comes out and right before he jumps in the ring, then his music starts. So it's kind of like in those WWE video games where the guys come out and they go on, their music goes on for too long. This is the opposite. Their music doesn't go on for long enough. Because most of them are already in the ring by the time it properly kicks in. <laughs> well, they were. I know it's a short runway, but like they weren't even like m- like milking the moment that much. Like Christian probably took about three seconds to get into the ring, so you basically heard off and that's it and by the time he gets in the ring suddenly everyone's realized oh it's christian none of them <laughs> none, of, none of them actually milked the moment really um at least at this point which i was very surprised by i mean obviously d and grandmaster a little bit when they because they were entering one and two but 
Mosh didn't milk it. Christian didn't milk it. And Rikishi basically just got straight into the ring and made the match interesting. You saying, oh, it's Christian just reminds me of that commentary moment. That's why I laughed. So, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it's Christian. Oh, no. I've just told Christian to. No, I can't. <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't think you realised what you just did. Yeah, I, I have just told Christian to. God, I'd, I'd much rather have Taz call me out and rip me a new asshole for the last one um, rather than do a Todd Grisham because that's one of the most underwhelming uh, calls ever and basically killed Christian on arrival. So <laughs> now you've ruined it for me, Mike. Thank you so much. And it's, a, it's of your own doing, mate. You've got no one to blame but yourself. No, I'm going to do a Facebook man. I'm going to blame other people. Ah, fair enough. <laughs> well, uh... Yeah, like, uh, like, because I get what you're saying about this, the crowd, because, like, guys come out as before their music even has a chance to like, kick in, so fans don't really have much time to react and pop for, like, whoever comes out. But, uh, as I said, I'm going to, like, a couple engines at a time, because I've never had to do a Rumble review at a podcast, I don't think, before, so this is new for me. But, yeah, Kishi comes out at number five, big, massive pop, he eliminates Christian and Mosh in quick succession I think something that's really helped Rikishi is like too cool and Rikishi especially week on week since his arrival uh, I've been getting more and more over but what helped Rikishi recently is actually on the first Smackdown of 2000 Rikishi got a WAF title shot against Triple H like he was actually Triple H's first opponent like Triple H had this like lottery like random lottery that clearly at first started out rigged where he kept pulling out names like Andre the Giant and Fabulous Miller and then, like you said, like I'll get someone to objective to pull a name out. Let's get Howard Finkel up here, and Howard Finkel accidentally knocks over the tumbler with all the names in it, and Triple H perfectly goes, "Oh God damn it, Howard, your balls are all over the floor." <laughs> he picks up a random one, and he goes, he reads out Rikishi's name, and Triple H just looks and I like, "Wait, I actually have to defend the title." And Rikishi, like, if he, I recommend you guys go go and find this match because he puts in a hell of an effort. The match ends in a DQ. I think Triple H gets himself DQ'd because like, I think he really it helped put over Rikishi really well. Like, he was such a threat that Triple H basically had to escape with the belt. So I think that's really helped when he comes out here like, and helps him get this pop. He eliminates Morrison Christian, as I said. He gets loud dropped from Dilo, but pops right back up and eliminates him. And then he has a bit of a stare down with Grandmaster before Scott Too Hot. He comes out at number six. And this is probably... Is it the most memorable bit of this Rumble, other than the finish? I would yeah. say so. I mean, it's one of the most iconic Rumble moments of all time, because I'd complete, I, I've seen this moment countless times, but I always forget what Rumble it's from. And then when I saw Grandmaster Sex A in, and then I saw Rikishi, and I was like, oh shit, is this the one where it happens? And yeah, I mean, it's and it's just per, it's the perfect moment for that. The early kind of rounds as such of a Rumble can be a slog. Mm. and this kind of really spiced it up so yeah it was it was i i mean it's it's as i say it's one of those iconic moments i think it also helps in terms of um as in i'll i'll go into i'll 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 explain it later on probably in terms of why i think this but i would always recommend this pay-per-view if you've never seen a rumble before because it's actually even though it's not high quality for those who are used to rumble um it somehow explains a lot of how a rumble normally works. So watching Tuko and Rikishi dancing in the rumble, it demonstrates that one, anything can happen in the Royal rumble. 
which is obviously said by JR because, you know, you've got to make this go pre-viral. Um, but secondly, it really helps with telling the story of showing that it truly is every man for himself, um, which obviously, Scott, you'll explain in a second uh, when you con- uh, continue describing what happens. But it fulfills two objectives. It demonstrates that anything can happen in the Rumble, which is perfect for those who have never seen it before, give you an idea of uh, what could possibly happen. And then it also shows how serious it is to win the Rumble because of the fact that uh, friends and brothers and that sort of thing will turn on each other for this opportunity. So it's, it's one of those rare iconic moments that actually has worthwhile reason to it. Mm hmm. It's weird because like fans are quite cynical nowadays, and like characters are basically just presented as oh this guy likes to have fun or this guy likes to dance. Like when Noah was it was brought to the main roster, he really struggled, and yet you got a Madison Square Garden crowd, probably one of the loudest they've been to at this point, uh, like up there with when Taz came out because these three guys are in the ring and they all want to see them dance rather than eliminate each other because the Scottish audience would get big pots when coming out with the other members of Two Cool. I think this is the loudest pop we thought he's got when coming out on his own because, like, when his music hits, he was like, oh, that's the final they're all going to dance. And he, like, it's probably one of the biggest pops of Scotty to his entire career. And then, like, where everybody's, like, encouraging, like, he's, like, trying to talk with Keisha Down out of eliminating Grandmaster. And, like, yeah, and they all dance. And, uh, GR just, I just love how GR's acting, like, oh, well, we've taken a little break from the action. We're going to dance for a while. And then, Rikishi attacks, just clotheslines both of them and throws them over the top rope and this kind of shrugs like, hey, as you said, like every man from himself. Although, you know, if this was nowadays, immediately there'd be a bunch of tweets and articles going out like, Rikishi turns heel at Royal Rumble. Like, no, he fucking didn't. No, it's just he just wants to go to WrestleMania and you can appreciate and understand that. I think what makes this popular and other attempts later on to try and do the same thing is that this actually felt had a sense of authenticity to it in Mm. that these are three guys who have a history of dancing all the time in the middle of matches but it's enjoyable and that's the difference whereas every time after this if you've got like Ernest the Cat Miller or someone like that coming in and trying to dance or Brodus Clay it's boring by that point it's trying to uh, tie back into this awesome moment and they've just got to accept that it's not the same. This happened in this moment. It was fantastic because it suited the three characters because it's two goofballs and Rikishi being awesome. And uh, everyone after that who tries to do it just ends up looking stupid. So I think um, that's the reason why it's so popular is because it still has a sense of it makes sense and it's just a pure moment of joy for a couple of seconds and then you continue on. It, it happens gradually and naturally as opposed to force mm-hmm. yeah i think part of the reason i was i, I was i had to include that thing about how this would happen today is, is like we were talking in a previous podcast about how after like when belgian jim lost to kishida and when kishida was being so brutal after the match there were people on twitter going like oh has kishida turned heel and like no he's just showing more aggression and sort more of a fire. And, you know, given everything we found out about Velvet Dreams, you recently, this should have just made Kushida more of a face than he already is, but that's, that's, uh, that's my opinion <laughs> of it. So we go that's from that's the reading hat. between the lines there, as opposed to what's actually 
on the on the lines. So that that's bringing our own context in, but a hundred percent true. So. <laughs> So we go from the height of like this massive two cool pot to entrant number seven, Steve Blackman, and the crowd goes mild. Literally. I will not have slander against Steve Blackman. <laughs> the lethal oh, weapon fuck deserves off. fucking respect. No, I won't have it. I won't have it. I loved Steve Blackman as a kid and I still love him now. Hey, to be fair, he is the ultimate straight man in a comedic tag team of head cheese. Him and Al Snow was inspired, and I've never seen a better stand-up than Steve Blackman at the old folks' home. However, this is not that Steve Blackman. So I can allow slander against Blackman for this match because back then he was just meh. He wasn't yet the charismatic enigma that we knew he could be. I just won't have any slander against Steve Blackman flat out. Man is a great <laughs> and it's just like a plain scone he's just nothing and also talking about Hedgies actually the formation of Hedgies I think began on the go home Smackdown win and the oddest tie team match I've ever seen uh, was Kurt Angle and the Bulldog who made one of his first his first match since Armageddon uh, taking on Al Snow and Blackman which is more, not, more, more memorable for me not for the match but for a pre-match but where they're walking through the corridor and uh, Al Snow goes this will be a perfect tag team you know my old partner Mick Foley had three personalities. You don't have any personality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> but he comes out, the crew don't say that, and when he's in the ring thinking Rikishi, I could hear Blackman sucks chant. And then he gets hit with the island driver by Rikishi and I quickly eliminated. And then out comes Viscera and his massive bin bag. Uh, yeah. The the yeah. thing I don't know whether you notice like when Fisra comes out, um you actually hear the crowd go Oh and it, it it was it was weird because they don't care about Fisra. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. They don't care about Fisra at all. But in that moment they cared that Rikishi was fighting Fisra. And that is a there's a real distinction in that, and I I always like this this moment because this was the moment where you could see the New York crowd truly getting behind Rikishi because they're like shit, how is he going to get Fisher out? Like Fisher is a like twice the size of him. How is he going to do it? And this is the moment where the crowd is connecting, the crowd is getting invested, and it's because. Viscera of all fucking people walk out. It's it's insanity, but in the context of the rumble, it works. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Because like I, I like Daryl Lawler back in this time when he would like just change his his pick like constantly. Like, well, this guy's gonna win. Oh, like now this guy's my new favorite to win. <laughs> uh, I think it's a trope that Corey agrees to kind of picked up in more recent years. But like uh, Daryl Lawler even says like. Whichever one of these two eliminates the other, that's the guy I think is going to win the Rumble because they're the two kind of biggest guys, two of, two of the biggest guys in the Rumble. And it's actually Visser that gets most of the offense and it's only after Visser misses a splash in the corner that because he's managed to like, hit him with a super kick and then eliminate him. So, like, Visser, uh, Rikishi manages to eliminate Visser. And then now comes number nine, the big boss man who just does actually the smartest thing up until this point 
and just kind of wait around the outside and just slow down because like he's just seen this guy eliminate everybody else that's came out so far. So he just said like I'll just wait here until number ten comes out. Test who actually beat the boss man on Raw before this, the one the hardcore title. Uh, he goes after a boss man the outside before throwing him back inside the the ring. Uh, and then I put here number eleven bulldog. Nothing really happens. Yeah, that's fair. I I actually remember I I've got pretty much three sentences dedicated to those three entrants because they all connected. And this is basically what I put: big boss man, the smartest man so far, and Tess got a surprisingly good pop. It is a little depressing to realise not so long ago they were challenging for the WWF title and such. Talking of depressing, here's British Bulldog. <laughs> I, I'd forgotten Bulldog was even around, I think, because he hadn't, he hadn't appeared. Like, between the go-home Raw and Armageddon, like, there was nothing from Bulldog. As soon as he lost the European title, he was seemingly gone. And I actually did a review of SummerSlam 1992 for my other podcast, and uh, I thought we talked very highly how Bulldog was in that match, despite all the stories of him, you know, like, Brett, I'm fucked. And all that, and then like days later, I watched the the go home raw, and suddenly Bulldog shows up, and I'm reminded like, oh god, how far you fell in just a few years. Mm. The difference is absolutely. Um, well, I, I said it. It was de- it's depressing because at one point, British Bulldog was main eventing the biggest pay per view in. England and battling for the IC Championship and looked like a possible main eventer. Um, in the 95 Rumble that was shown early on, him and Shawn Michaels carried mm-hmm. the entire Rumble. Both men l- looked like they were in a position that they could have gone on to do something. And then just five years after that Rumble, British Bulldog is now an also rat. It's nothing important at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do agree with you like with Tess because like, weirdly every now and then Tess will get a massive reaction despite doing nothing to deserve it mm. I think that maybe I'm, I, I'm try, the only thing I can think of is maybe like oh we remember Tess and Bossman from Raw this past week and now Bossman's on the outside and now here, now here comes Tess I don't know I can't explain it yeah number 11 was Bulldog number 12 Gangrel he has a very uh, meh reaction I think when he comes out you know does his old uh, I think people realise like, oh, this ramp is too short for me to do the fire thing. Therefore, he's not interesting and not worth reacting to. <laughs> uh, and then Kai and Ty are back, and then this is the moment where Attack gets flown over the top and smacks his face right on the the concrete. And Jerry uh, Lola would find this hilarious because he'd asked for at least three or four different replays of it throughout the night, and at one point he was saying, can we see that Chinese guy get hit in the face again, to which JR just eventually loses his drag with him, like, he's Japanese, King, for God's sake. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but from the street fight onwards, Jerry the King Lawler had actually been relatively good as an announcer. I can't believe I'm saying that, because I can't stand his commentary, but his work in the street fight, his call near the end when he's talking about Stephanie, don't come out here, this guy's psychotic, works so well. And the beginning of this um, Royal Rumble, he's actually 
relatively good. And then it comes to this moment. And it's basically like all of the goodwill that Jerry Lawler had earned from me in like the last 15, 20 minutes or, or 50 minutes, whatever it was by that point. He destroyed it in the blink of an eye with what is even even jr calls it at one point xenophobic rea- uh, reactions it's horrendous to watch it's uncomfortable it makes jerry lawler look pathetic that he cannot get over the fact that taka mishinoku was thrown out of the ring the fact that he wants it replayed several times i actually thought was nasty and really and really revolting to some degrees and as considering this was one of my first main introductions to Jerry Lawler at the age of like nine, I've never liked him as a commentator. And I think a lot of it comes from his performance during this uh, rumble because he is unbearable at times. He is borderline unbearable. He has three things he talks about pretty much. Mae Young's boobs, um, eliminating Takamichinoku and being a useless twat. And I hate, I hate this moment. I absolutely hate it. It pisses me off every time. And it doesn't help that Gangrel looks like he um, was personally offended by Takamichinoku coming in and eliminated him so viciously. Because it was a vicious throw that he did. And I hate it. Absolutely hate it. This, for me, is the worst part of the, of the rumble. So how you really feel. Yeah. <laughs> So what you're saying? So what you're saying is you like him. I like him when he's not there. Kind oh, okay. of, like, kind of like I like not having a hole in my head. You know, when it's not there, it feels great. When it's there, um, it depresses me. So um, this is Jerry, Jerry Lawler is revolting during this pay per view. He is unbearable. He is a poor imitation of an announcer and commentator. Oh, yeah, I think I think it's Bossman and Gangrel that kind of grab me. I could see them both are in the the ring rope, or in the ropes near where he was getting thrown out. I think he was trying to do some sort of flip when he like to make the like make it seem like more impressive an elimination. Kind of like when when uh, Paul ended that flip when he got eliminated by Snitsky in like oh five, but. I think he may have got caught up in the rope. He may have got caught in the rope, saying just smacks his face. And like, there's a reason when there's uh, more run-ins later that's only Finaki coming out and not Taka. Because I, I think I don't think they were lying when they said Taka was at the hospital because he, I, he looks fucked. Uh, yeah, that was Gangrel. That shows how interesting Gangrel was. That really we don't talk about him and more about Taka and Michinoku. Uh, number thirteen, Edge comes out with a weird, really creepy smile on his face. It still gets a somewhat decent reaction. He pokes Bulldog in the eye when he tries to eliminate him. Uh, and then they bring up what happened on SmackDown with me Young trying to stick her tongue down his throat. And <laughs> uh, Boss, Bossman gets hit with the bonsai drop from Rikishi. Why well, nobody thought to go up behind Rikishi and push him over the top when he got up in the middle rope? I don't know. And number 14, the, the real surprise entrant of this rumble Heel to the Chief plays as Finster from Power Rangers. I mean, uh, Bob Backlund. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
that's great. <laughs> he, he does, though. He does. Honestly. I just, so I, I, I just put Bob Batlin comes out in his PE shorts. <laughs> it, it does look like like your granddad in an old pair of shorts. They wear it all day far too tra- long. Or, yeah, chuck a pair of daps or a pair of pumps on him and he's ready for PE. Get get him get him out on the tennis court. Was he did he did he forget he's he's ring gear and then as you were told in PE just like yeah, go to lost property. PE, doing it your underwear. <laughs> or go or go to lost property and find where you can. It looks like a pair of shorts that Vince McMahon used to wear when he was stood around his own pool showing off his biceps. So Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not a great look, and it's especially weird considering only a couple of years previously, Bob Backlund was still performing in his normal underwear. So, um, why did he suddenly get so shy and decide to not wear his normal outfit? Instead, he decides to end up looking like a child accidentally wandered into the ring with um with PE outfit on. So, it's <laughs> not great, but um. To be fair, I do love the fact that Bob Backlund actually got a bit of a reaction and probably one of the better reactions of like the last five or six people to come in. Yeah. It's like, you can't have Kai and Tyre Mean Street Posse in the rumble because you need to save spots for people like Bob Backlund. Yeah. yeah, he comes out and like, they mentioned he was running for Congress, I think, over in this time or something like that. And he goes, I think he got a decent because like, he is one of the guys from like the old days of like when it was like I think the WF was still a territory and they were running the garden on like a monthly basis and everything like that. I'm pretty sure the last time he wrestled in Madison Square Garden was when he lost the WF title to Diesel in like eight seconds after Jeez. he won it from Brett. <laughs> uh, he comes out and uh, he, I say he helps. He he has a hand on like Rikishi's foot while everybody else in the ring gangs up to eliminate Rikishi. So it took about what six guys to eliminate Rikishi. And so Rikishi's gone. I think the crowd aren't really happy about that. Number 15 is Chris Jericho, who then who then eliminates Backlund. And Backlund decides to just wander through the crowd, which I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if Backlund just decided to go through the crowd and forgot where he was meant to go, because he seems like a mad bastard even back then. Yep, wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> crazy, crazy man. All over. Like, you, you'd expect him that he was just coked off his nut. That's what it seemed like. He was always, it always seemed like he was on something, just fucking a wild, like just wild mentality. I'm pretty sure that if you could bottle whatever he's running on, you could sell that and it'll be stronger than cocaine. I mean, the guy once had it in, I think, 86 degree heat. He was still wearing a bow tie and suit and he undid his bow tie and apologized for letting his standards slip. And it's just insanity. I mean, but he's got to be so, he's got to be so interesting. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't go for a drink with him, but I probably would like watch him whilst he was in a pub and see what he does. Um, make sure he doesn't notice me in case he comes over to talk to me, but he's just pure insanity. And I love it. It's so random. <laughs> oh God. Like, and it's weird that someone like him is getting brought back for like, I know it's a one off, but someone like him is getting brought back. Actually, I think he pops up once or twice in like segments. I think he does some stuff with Kurt Angle after this. Like he gets brought back when like they, they spent the past four or so years making fun of WCW for hiring old guys or guys who are perceived to be old guys. And I'm pretty sure 
that however old like the Hogan and Macho Man were when they went over WCW, they were still younger than however old Bob Backlund was when he came out here. But the question is, they're going by human years, and Bob Backlund is not human, so therefore he could actually turn out to just be twenty-three in Backlund years. So <laughs> he's like a dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he ages completely differently. So it's just like everyone else is like. I'm 63 and I can't wrestle anymore. And he's like, I'm 76 and I can still do a thousand squats. And it's like, yeah, but none of us want to see those squats. So you don't, you don't have been like 20. Just that exact thing that Bob Backlund is like Hans Molman. Like wrestling has ruined my life. I'm 31 <laughs> years old. <laughs> uh, I I almost wish Bob Backlund had been in it longer, just because he looks so happy. No matter what he does, like he does, um, what was it? I think, um, an atomic drop, and afterwards he just looks at the crowd with such joy. And then, uh, Chris Jericho eliminates him. He's and like a he's like a pensioner out on day release. That is, he probably is on freaking day release, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's why he's actually going through the crowd. It's because he saw his um, people trying to collect him again. He went, No, you fucking ain't, and went, <laughs> went straight up the um, aisles instead. It's just He's just a he's just a mad bastard. It's not a worth for it. Another thing, I think the main reason that he didn't have room for Kang Tai and Bloody Moon Street Posse, not that I really wanted to desperately see them in the rumble, is because like still, I, I have a weird role. I don't think if you wrestle earlier on in the card, you don't get to be in the rumble match itself. Especially not when WWE, especially nowadays, has such a stacked roster. And they've always had a pretty large like roster and like there's no short of talent here. Like fucking Jericho comes out and some other people who wrestled earlier on the night come out and like, and like none of them really affect the match in any significant way. So like, are we really sure that if you gave people the spots to the posse and that that this match would be any worse or better off or give it to somebody rather than somebody who's already had a a profile match on the show? It's it's an interesting question because um, there there are examples where it works. So, like, for instance, I remember, I think it would have been about 2005, um, Kurt Angle lost a title match early in the evening, and he attacked someone and got into the Royal Rumble. Now, because it's Kurt Angle, that's awesome, and it it suits his character at the time, and it ended up starting his feud with um, Shawn Michaels at the time. So, that is kind of cool. The only ones I would say shouldn't be allowed to come in, though, would actually be ones who have been in a championship match. And I, the one I remember predominantly, and you guys might even remember it, was when Roman Reigns lost, I think it was the Universal Championship match to Kevin Owens, and then he entered at number 30 in the Rumble, and it just makes it, 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 makes it basically smack of nepotism. And it's not a good look at all. Though that's the times when I would say you probably shouldn't do it. But other other matches, I mean, you can you get to have Dean Ambrose limping into a ring because he's been in a last man standing match and that sort of thing. That's what I mean. It work, it works in that sort of sense, and and occasionally, I mean, I get what you're saying about Reigns, and that was that was kind of key key Reigns moment where he's just being forced 
forced down fans' throats when it wasn't it wasn't wanted in the slightest. But if it's if it was if it's someone that's, I mean, you kind of got to read the room a little bit and understand right. Is this a popular person? Would it be would it be good for them to enter the rumble? Even if they had it, if they've lost their championship match and it was early on in the card, i.e., one or two going on first or second. So. If you're looking at the scale of things now, what's what's bigger at the moment? Arguably, the the universal title, which well, whichever one Drew's got, because obviously it's on Raw. If you were looking at that, you could say back in the day, obviously the WWE Championship was the was the kind of prized possession. Um, if you had the World Heavyweight Championship, you, if you had the World Heavyweight Champion go out, open the show, and they lost, you could feasibly have them come back in. But again, you you you'd want to get a read on it for will that person be well received because what you don't want is take today's uh, uh, take like today's wrestlers for example you wouldn't want fucking baron corbin losing a title in the opener of the opener of the pay-per-view and then coming out at number 30 or whatever it's just it's it's, it's a case of re- like reading the room and knowing who would go down well if you know what i mean yeah like Angle had a good response when he came out because despite the fact he was the heel, he was still well respected at the time. Whereas Roman Reigns was the opposite end where he was the um, representation of nepotism and people were getting sick and tired of it and it didn't help his case at all. It actually almost seemed like it was intentional trolling to make him look bad. It doesn't help that in this match, I've just looked on Wikipedia, seven of the competitors in this match wrestled earlier on in the evening, basically the IC title and the tag team title match. So that to some degrees can make sense because they haven't had a chance to challenge for any major championship. So it's fair for them to be involved, but then you think to yourself, so that's seven people who got forced into this match. Um, as well as Bob Backlund, probably. So that's eight people. It's just, it starts making a mess of the legitimacy of it. And you're like, oh, 30 people could have entered this ring. It's all been picked. And then they go, oh, actually, we've now just gotten eight people from earlier on. And it's just, it, it, it just smacks of lack of planning to some degrees at times, especially, but the thing is, would you really want to a place like, let's say, Bradshaw, Farouk, Chris Jericho, China, Bob Backer, etc. Do you really want to replace them with Kai and Tai and the Mean Street Posse? Because the difference is, is that um, Chris Jericho, New Age, New Age Outlaws, those lot, they are champions already. So they've already earned the possibility to uh, uh, challenge for the WWF title. What's Mean Street Posse done? What's Kai and Tai done? They haven't done enough to justify it. But then obviously you've got Bob Back. Well, Bob Backer's a former WWF champion. Of course he deserves to go in. It. It, to be fair, we probably give it more legitimacy and thought than Vince McMahon does. Um, so that's the thing. It, it's a bit like everything else with the Royal Rumble. If you're going to make a decision on who could go in, who could join the match, um, having wrestled earlier in the evening, I would like there to be some damn cons- uh, consistency on the decisions made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. I don't know. I'm not saying that the match would be better with these guys. I'm just saying it's weird that these guys get to be half a good portion of the match is uh, is made up of people who are already wrestled early in the night. And also, what was weird is that even though I hate them, how the hell did they decide which headbangers go on? Because only one of them comes that you get moshed. I I did think that. Like, mm. How did they decide? How did they decide what the better headbanger was? Because 
spoiler alert, there is no better headbanger. Well, it's it's just basically who's who's the best of a worst bunch, and you go, no, actually, they're both as bad as each other. Um, so it's like choosing between Mosh and Thrasher is just it's like choosing between constipation and diarrhea. You know, it's new. Neither one of them are preferable. But you have to have one of them. <laughs> yeah, and one of them is going to get out quicker than the other, and that's probably going to be Mosh. So that's why they went for him. So, yeah. So, uh, Jericho was number 15. Number 16, Crash Holly. Number 17, She's uh, She eliminates Jericho before getting pushed off the apron by Bossman, which immediately made Bossman the biggest face. In my opinion, for that brief moment, because really, I've kind of gone off China, even though she really helped me in a recent quiz I did. Uh, I don't really note down anything for Crash Holly, because I couldn't honestly not remember anything that happened between Crash Holly coming in and China coming in. Hey, there, there, Holly, there, there wasn't anything. Crash Holly was the biggest challenge to The Rock. So show some respect on that man's damn name. Okay? That was, that was Headbanger Mosh was the biggest challenge. No, so no, they're both, they're both were, but both I think the Rock feels more confident now that Mosh has been eliminated. Now he only has to deal with Crash. If he gets by Crash, and he's he's, he's, got, the, he's, he's gonna he's, yeah he's on the right he's on the right path. Yeah, I mean he does weigh well over four hundred pounds. So the Rock needs to be careful when battling the behemoth that is Crash Holly. Uh, out comes Farouk, who gets attacked by the posse literally as soon as he gets in the ring, and then is thrown out by Bossman, so really quite an underwhelming showing from Farouk, but I think he'd be used to that after that really crap tag title match he just had. Uh, it was probably well, one of those nights where he just wants to go home and just forget everything. I mean, it's an easy, it's an e- easy paycheck. So, I, think he like, I think he's almost starting to miss the days where he debuted and had to wear a shitty blue helmet for a while. <laughs> that uh, might have helped him keep in the ring. Uh, Road Dog comes out and he goes after Tess and it's something I realised that Tess seems to be a lot of people's first target when they come to the ring for some reason they, people, have got, people, people have got small man syndrome haven't they Look at, you see you see bit old Big Andy in there you want to take him out like, no no it's, it's intelligence because even though the big boss man technically came out before Tess Tess was, has been in the ring the longest because Bossman threw Test in. So therefore, he is the one you go for because he is the weakest. It's intelligence. You don't go for Big Bossman because he'll just eliminate you with a jerk of his elbow. So he's too dangerous. You go for Test, who's been in there for so long. Um, Why is talking about Bossman in a really roundabout way? I'm going to use that as an opportunity to go back to China. Did either of you notice that when China came out, despite the fact her music should be so well known to the commentators, they still didn't realise it was her until she was nearly in the freaking ring. <laughs> I think I think that, obviously, I know it, ha- it happened the year before. Was it the year before she was in the, r- in the Rumble? Yeah, I think... Yeah, 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 so so I, I think that was one of those where they were like... They were unsure whether that, that China would have been in there again, obviously, because she is female. But, you know, that would be my only logic of that, other than that. It's just sloppy commentary, isn't it? Mm. Such yeah. a surprise, I know. But uh, I think they're trying just again for the fact nobody likes Tess because you know Tess has just gotten a bad way of it ever since he since he and Stephanie kind of broke up. 
uh, like Roadhog goes after him. Uh, Al Snow comes out next, doesn't really, again, do much. She's still technically heel, but you'll be back to your comedic face alongside straight man Steve Blackman. So now that's, uh, Road Dog eliminates Bulldog to show that it's a dog eat dog rumble out there. It's a real shit plan. I thought of it there and I hate myself for them. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's okay. I hate you too for that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> number, 21, number 21, the European champion, Val Venus. You wouldn't know it because I don't think they even mentioned the fact that he's European champion. Uh, Sanaki comes back out and what I've described as the flattest run in ever. And then at this point, I, I've noticed that once or twice I've put down my notes. Why do people keep going after Tess? <laughs> what what did Tess do to everyone? Why stop coming after me? Uh, uh, number twenty-two, Albert. I think Albert's the one I was talking about who came out too quick. That his entrance music kicked in when he was already halfway to the ring. Uh, he and Alvina. Oh, but I think I remember that because didn't he was launching it down? He mm. like. He pretty much like came out, turned, and vroom, and then like how, as he was getting up to the ring, you suddenly hear, but it's because Prince Albert suddenly was running like his ass was on fire or something like that. I don't think I've seen that man ever move that fast in my life. So that was quite impressive. Watch his New Japan stuff. You'd be surprised. Well, he can actually move fast. Legit. He was a killer. He was a killer at New Japan. Wasn't that giant Bernard, if I remember correctly? It, it was, but I've heard they're very similar people. Mm. It, it doesn't help, like, the fact how quickly it comes out, the fact his entrance theme has kind of a quiet guy, just as we, like, drumstick going, bumped, and then his music kicks in, which I'm pretty sure is very similar to check the Ivory theme song, so I think they're both, I think they're just repackaging theme songs for people they don't care about at this point. Uh, but one of them looks better in a swimsuit. And it ain't Ivory. Yeah. Look at this sign up to Albert's OnlyFans now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just don't show me his piercings, please. You get a free lock of back hair when you sign up. <laughs> so, so we talk about piercings, you know, for a hundred dollars once you get to see a true meaning of a Prince Albert, but <laughs> <laughs> what did we take it there, man? Fucking hell. <laughs> Oh, he did a Jerry the King Lawler. Uh, yeah. He showed, me, he, he showed me a person that didn't hurt, and then he showed me one that did. <laughs> uh, I remember we were talking about Albert and like, his different personas on a podcast once. And, uh, like, we talked about him as Sensei, and then we were trying, trying, someone was trying to move on to talking about him as Prince Albert. He goes, no, you know, he's named after you know, a Houston to the penis or something like that. And somebody who didn't know what a Prince Albert was went, what, you, well, that's called a Tensei. Like no. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got a I've got a tensai in my pants and it's excited to see you. <laughs> Why have we gone down this street? What the fuck, guys? <laughs> I'm just imagining somebody going to a fusion shop asking for a Lord Tensai and uh, <laughs> like I've been in this game for a long time, I've never heard of this. Oh, <laughs> uh, you you learn something every new day in the piercing game. Uh anyway, <laughs> we on. So yeah, uh, Albert comes out, Edge is eliminated by Val and Albert, and Albert goes after Bossman because uh, after like a few months of being part of a tag team that no one cared about, he had a CAD team breakup that no one cared about, and then a match on the go on Smackdown that nobody cared about. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm starting to see a, a trend developing there. I, I was just about to say, I'm, here, I'm, I'm seeing a theme. I'm not sure if I can pick up that theme, but I think there might be one. Yeah, it, it might be pricking at the back of your mind. Maybe, mate, maybe. <laughs> uh, Oscar Holly comes out. He, again, he goes after a test as well. Ken keeps saying, like, every time somebody comes out, like, oh, this is going to be a rock. Oh, okay, now I'm sure it's a rock's going to come out. Uh, and, oh, no, it's not the rock. And then he, get, he goes, it's the rock ever going to come out here? Where the hell is the rock? I thought he was in the trumble. And then come number 24, the rock's music hits, and the crowd finally wake up and like, yes, now here comes somebody who can actually win this. Yeah, here's someone who actually matters. It's a shot of energy to the crowd and basically just wakes them up. Um, what what depresses me slightly is that most people would probably assume that Joe the King Lawler actually knew when the rock was coming out and was saying it just to try and time it perfectly. So he'd be like, you know, I'm starting to wonder, is the rock ever actually going to come out here? Unfortunately, I was actually sad enough to read his autobiography when I was younger. And it turns out, no, he's not that clever. He doesn't even read the script, so he was just damn lucky. <laughs> okay. Well, and then The Rock, luckily enough, eliminates Crash Holly right off the bat, so he got by his, his other biggest threat, so she would clear sailing from now on for The Rock. He eliminates Postman. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like I said, I think the middle portion between Mikishi getting eliminated and his little run and The Rock coming out, the best way I can describe it is it's mid-card mania running wild in Madison Square Garden because like yeah you got guys who are over but you suddenly realise like that these guys punch each other and guys dangling over the ropes and like trying not to get eliminated isn't really as interesting as you might think it is and you soon realise like you got to think I cannot see any of these guys going on to main event Wrestlemania and also it was at this point I forgot Road Dog was still in the rumble until uh, shortly after they show him just hanging onto the rope the bottom rope just for dear life and just staying out of the way. So I forgot Road Dog even existed. <laughs> uh, it, that's I mean, fine. that's not the worst existence to have. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the only time when you could possibly say that Road Dog may be a member of Mensa because he has the intelligence to wrap himself around the bottom rope like he's spooning it for the rest of the evening. Um, it's It's actually very clever which makes me wonder who told him to do it because i i refuse to believe he came up with it himself um (laughs) it's absolutely it actually it adds a bit of humor to the rumble i love i love the fact that every now and again you just see road dog still hanging on to the rope for dear life even though nobody's near him um but it does have one of the worst endings in the entire Rumble, which we'll get to later on. But. I like to think that Rodug did come up this time, so it's like, oh God, like, don't me how last how long in the Rumble? I mean, those matches go on for an hour. I'm already working two minutes, 30 seconds, and earlier on in the night, I can't go any further than that. I'll just cling on to the rope for a while. I'll, I'll say be having to do anything. I'm, I've got drugs to get to backstage. <laughs> 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 that was a, a not so veiled dig there. You couldn't you couldn't have been a little bit more. You couldn't have been any more subtle if you tried, mate. I couldn't, I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember what what he, which drugs he partook in. Most I just said drugs. Yeah, but I can I can see the shuffle from here. That was uh, so subtle a dig. So hundred percent, mate. Hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, and uh, number twenty five outcomes Billy Gunn. 
who just goes right after the rock as if subconsciously said, this is for what happened at SummerSlam. <laughs> this is for making me um, completely worthless and unmemorable. Um, no, you did that yourself when you decided to call yourself an ass man and come out to music that says that you... <laughs> that is an iconic theme. That uh, uh, Slander against Billy Gunn, fine. Slander against that theme... Not a chance. I, I remember. I, I remember loving that theme as a kid, like playing SmackDown Two. Know your role. I was either Sa Rios or Billy Gunn. The fact that you love that song does make me start to wonder, and I might have to call your fiance to ask her about you. But um, <laughs> it, it's. It, I I will admit. It is a banger, despite the fact it's got stupid lyrics. But no main eventer will ever come out to that. It's like it pretty much is the equivalent of like um, having it that you've got the smashing glass, you've got the music, the fuck the world, etc. And then instead of coming out as Stone Cold Steve Austin, you come out as Chitty McFreeze. You know, it just does not fucking work. It is no main event possibility at all. And it's the same with Billy Gunn coming out with um i'm an ass man i want to pick him i want to kick him i want to do all over uh it's just it doesn't work it doesn't work at all he was never going to be a main event star and unfortunately he is not the worst uh on the king of the ring trophy like, i think well my favorite thing about the, the ass man theme is the second verse that not a lot of people get to really hear <laughs> the second verse because like it's got such lyrics in the same verse as Buns of go- buns of glory, buns of steel. Your eyes will give away the truth of how I feel, and shit like that. Like I think a conquest. I heard people say like Jim Johnson is that he he gives up on the second verse because he assumes wrestlers will be in the ring by that point. That is quite inspired, and I love that. And it just makes it even more of a banger, and even more likely something that Mike is absolutely going to love. Like, and I don't know what. Well, theme- well. <laughs> I mean, he's got a, a great run of, of bloody themes, doesn't he? Because he's got that, you know, he's got that song that he and he used with Chuck that Rico would later take as his own. Uh, you look so <laughs> good to me. And then it's just like, I was going to say, I was just about to start singing that, and I was like, why is that not ringing true that that's Billy and Chuck? And that's like, I, I just had, for some unknown reason, I was thinking... That's a Divas theme song, but now I remember. No, it is. I, I was questioning myself there. To be fair, having watched their preparation for the wedding, they were Divas. So it, do, it does pass off. I'm going to say it. Yeah, fair. And then you've got the one Billy Gunn theme song, which I'm pretty sure there's a Twitter account there dedicated to, basically. Having that theme song play over the opening credits of, like, random 80s sitcoms, because it just suits any of them. Oh, like, Got such inspired, inspired likes as "Look at all I've got," enough to make a blind man see, or something like that. Oh, inspired! I need to see this. I need to see this. Please share it when you oh, share. Oh. <laughs> when you put out this um, this episode, just t- tag us underneath with that um, tw- uh, Twitter handle, and I'm just going to be sat there bombing along my head to it, absolutely loving it. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm currently. Uh, Giving it, give it, pulling the curtain back slightly here. I'm in the kitchen, just getting getting some dinner ready, and I've just got I'm an ass man in my head, I, 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 and it's just in my head now, and I fucking hate the pair of you for it. <laughs> Genuinely, to make sure to make sure you're washing your hands thoroughly, you know, in these COVID times, 
try singing Aspen and try getting to that often not heard second verse. That's how you know you've washed your hands for long enough. That's how you're probably safe to get out go outside again. Uh, Mike, what you don't realise is that in a couple of months' time, Scott is going to start creating um, music theme songs for all his guests, and yours is obviously going to be the ass man, but only from the second verse onwards to see if Fine. you recognise it. Fine. That, again, or oh, S.A. Rios' theme. <laughs> I remember that one. Didn't that Very Did Leah have the same theme, did she? I don't know, because I'm pretty... Because S.A. Rios and Leah debuted at the same time, I remember, because I was actually watching the episode of Sunday Night Heat when he debuted, because I think Gilbert came out and was like, I'm the light heavyweight champion. Someone come out and wrestle me. And then out came S.A. Rios, and like three minutes later, he was light heavyweight champion. And at the point, nobody clicked that the that out of the three people in that ring, it was the woman who was going to be the most famous and popular out of all of them. <laughs> Oh. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to think because I was I was going to put the Rock theme song at the as the outro, and now I'm thinking which one of Billy Gunn's three theme songs am I going to use uh, to to close out this show? Mash up, do a mash up, mash it up, <laughs> just mash it up. Oh, uh, I just have like I'm an ass man, and you look so good to me. And then it was just like buns of steel. Just go for it. <laughs> okay, well, people thought Buddy Miz and Big Show had the worst mashup team or whatever. That's that's gonna take fucking forever to put together. <laughs> I, don't know I, I, I can't take. wait. I can't wait. I am so down for this. If if it's not included, I would be so disappointed. You break me heart, Scott. It's useful to show how memorable Billy Gunn is that we've talked more about his entrance theme songs for far too long uh, <laughs> so far. So yeah, Billy Gunn came out and he fought the rock. Uh, but Road Dog's still hanging onto the ropes for dear life. Uh, out comes the big show at number 26. You know, they stayed the big hitters for the last couple of entrants, clearly. Uh, the rock immediately goes after the big show when he's even only got one foot over the rope. He uh, shoves off the rock. He eliminates Garen Grell. He eliminates Test. Test. Amazed, surprised you know. Yeah, Tess ends up being the Iron Man of this Royal Rumble, lasting 26 minutes 17. <laughs> and did absolutely fuck all of that time, other than get picked on by everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to keep you in there as long as possible, Tess, because nobody likes you and everybody wants to hit you. So, usually when you hear about an Iron Man, it would be like, oh, they lasted for 46 minutes, or they eliminated four people. And then this year, it's like, Test lasted the exact same amount of time as the entirety of the Cactus Jack uh, Triple H match, and contributed nothing, apart from a bare chest. I'm pretty sure that he lasted the average length of a of an episode of any sitcom, which probably has been edited to have Billy Gunn's the one theme edited over it. I don't know <laughs> if it's a Twitter account or if it's just a meme somewhere on YouTube. I will find it and I will send it to you somewhere. I cannot uh, wait. I cannot wait. So yeah, Big Show comes in, he's running wild. Like, I know it's a running trouble. How can anyone ever eliminate the Big Show? But given this is Big Show's first Wire on Black, I can forgive them for that. Uh, out comes Bradshaw, the posse get involved again, but Bradshaw like, aha, I watched what happened to Farouk, I prepared. <laughs> and he just he throws out the 
the posse, but then the outlaws sneak up from behind to eliminate them, which leads to a brawl in the entranceway between the posse and the acolytes. Uh, not much really else to say. To my 28, Kane! There you go, we've both done a Todd Grisham there. So. <laughs> Kane! I often think that he, he puts so much emphasis behind Kane's name to kind of make up for the fact that he puts so little behind Christian. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> uh, it, it, you notice that um, basically originally, so you had a very flat middle of the rumble, and like in the last six entrants, you've had Rock, Big Show, and Kane, and suddenly the fans actually give a shit and they're actually making noise. What you've just watched is how not to do a rumble. Don't put all your big stars bottlenecked at the end so nobody gives a shit. Well, to be fair, like, Big Show, Rock, and Kane all do, like, eliminate some people almost as soon as they get in. So I think they were just trying to let the ring fill up so that the big stars can throw them back out again. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so yeah, Kane gives out, he eliminates Val Venus and Albert like pretty quickly. Uh, number 28, the, the guy who's quickly become one of my favourites since doing this review, uh, the Godfather, comes out at number 29 and has a very bum, long entrance. Train. Train. Oh, that's all you need to hear. Been been easy. He comes out with the hose, he goes around. Kanaki comes out again, and like Jared is like, "Oh, for the love of Pete!" Al Snow randomly eliminates Harker Holly. Nothing really to say there, but yeah, Godfather does more with his entrance than when he does when he actually gets in the ring, because <laughs> uh, he gets, ends up getting eliminated by the Big Show. And number thirty, a man who earned the shot by beating Test on SmackDown, X Pac comes out at number thirty, and basically you got. Rock, Big Show, and King think these guys could win. Xbox comes out. Oh, please, God, let it not be him. Please, no, not one, two, three, kid. So <laughs> they would be the most shot on Rumble ever if X Pack had won. Because this is basically at the point where um, the X Pack key is starting to develop. Um, it's not all the way there yet. That will be the rest of the year, but. The the ter- the tide was starting to turn against him. Yeah, he goes after Kane because that feels a bit of kick off again. We've got a pretty short the next SmackDown where uh, the one of the more memorable moments of their rivalry happens. You know, the moment where Scott, a young Scott, realised that love is a as a lie and a facade and should never get close to anyone again. But we'll, we'll save that for the next episode. <laughs> That's deep, mate. You okay? <laughs> No, Do you, no, I'm not. He, he's, he's, he's been looking for the one for ages and he still can't fucking find him. So that's why I'm, he's so upset. I'm just worried that fucking some straggly haired prick who keeps doing making crotch shots will take her away. <laughs> <laughs> oh. How's this went uh. for talking about piercings and Billy Gunn's theme songs to game so deep? I don't know. Let's get back to the men throwing each other over the top rope in their underwear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the very masculine sport. Rock eliminates the uh, Al Snow, and weirdly, uh, Billy Gunn and Road Dog were kind of working together. And then Billy Gunn decides, like, I can't be asked with this, and just throws Road Dog over the top rope for really no reason. Again, proving how maybe Billy Gunn was too dumb for that main event push. Uh, and then he's quickly eliminated by uh, 
by Kane. And then Kane kind of ends up going on the outside. He's not eliminated, but he brawls with the uh, the outlaws, which means that Xbox gets thrown over the top, but the referees don't see it, so Xbox sneaks back in, which I think they set a precedent for because that's how Austin won the Rumble back in '97. So people thought, oh God, he's not going to steal this, is he? That was that was legitimately my worry when he snuck back in. Like, the, first of all. The, I, I, so I've got to go from Road Dog Elimination onwards because I've got things to say because that is, for me, the elimination of Road Dog might be the stupidest thing that man has ever done because he had supposed Menza-level intelligence by sticking to the ropes and he decides to randomly stand up and stand over the ropes to lambast someone who's just been thrown out. And he stands there for so long, I'm pretty sure the Godfather could have done another entrance and come back fucking in with the hose again. Because he's just standing there for ages. And, he, and that's the point where Billy Gundert goes, do you know what? If you're that Fuck fucking it. stupid that you're going to be stood there, I'm going to eliminate you because you're going <laughs> to shit out of me. So he throws him out. Road Dog's then like, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? And everyone's like, well, you're the idiot. So Ketting goes out, and then X-Pac takes one of the most painful elimination bumps. I was going to say, the bump was vile. That was so nasty. Like, And the worst thing is, it's, like, it's a bump that he didn't even have to do, because it didn't count. Nobody saw it, so it didn't matter. He could have easily just tumbled out like really leisurely. He could have uh, laid himself down, etc. And no, and it would have been fine. And then roll back him. And at that point, you are legitimately thinking, it's the McMahon Holmesy era. Please don't tell me X Pac is going to win this fucking rumble. And it doesn't help that he then starts con- um, doing really well. And it was legitimately at one point when Jerry Law is going, like, I think X Pac's going to go on and win this. That was the only moment where I went, Oh, thank God, he's definitely not winning it now. Jerry Law is giving him the kiss of fucking death. So <laughs> there was a lot of emotion packed in that in the, that two minutes of um, eliminations, basically. I had a lot to say about it. <laughs> but like eventually King gets back to the ring, he manages to slam the big show and then is eliminated by X Pac. Bastard. <laughs> X Pac then Bronco Busters the big show and then Big Show just gets right back up and like I do not appreciate your testicles and vicinity of my face. Get the fuck out and <laughs> eliminate them. This is why Prince Albert never did Bronco Busters. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, I nearly choked on my fucking drink then. <laughs> at least you didn't choke on a piercing. That would have been really awkward. I had a question about the piercing got near my mouth in the first place, bro. <laughs> if you believe the rumours, if you believe the rumours, I mean, the person you don't want to get a, a broken butter from is too cold Scorpio. If you believe the rumours, I can crush somebody's face out to wear a mask like The Undertaker did back in 95. <laughs> <laughs> Why have you got a broken orbital bone? Well... I don't really want to go into details because I'm still feeling awkward about it. <laughs> but so, yeah, we're down to the final two. We're very comfortable with our own sexuality. We're talking a lot about penises. <laughs> My fiance in the other room is blissfully unaware. Not, not, <laughs> if, we, not if we send her a copy. <laughs> oh, true, true. Did you know Mike is an ass, man? <laughs> he's an ass man and spends a lot of time talking about Prince Albert or as he likes to call them Lord Tenzai's <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Right, we're, near, we're near the end. We're near the end. Right, final two. Come on, let's get it back on track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> final two. Uh, listen, I'm pretty sure this podcast, this just this part of it, is longer than the Rumble match itself. Yeah. Uh, like, so down to the Rock and Big Show. I mean, I think if you watch the past couple weeks of SmackDown, you got to know, you got to think they kind of choreographed that. Rock manages to catch Big Show with famous or you know, goes with hits the people's elbow. Then when Big Show gets back, he manages to hit Rock with a choke slam, and then he kind of just he just shoots the crowd and kind of hot dogs for a second, just like I'm gonna throw him out, I'm gonna win the. You gotta respect me. Don't boo me. And then he picks the rock up. He goes to takes the thing to say which side I want to throw him out. And then he goes to like the stupidest looking elimination I think it's ever happened. Like because what we really expected to happen. Because then he goes to slam Brock out. The, he goes running, slams the Brock out of the ring. Brock grabs on the top rope and then sends the momentum. Sends Big Show flying over, and the Rock manages to survive. Or does he? <laughs> Because we later learned that maybe the rock feet did actually touch the mat, which and I think that's maybe why they kind of did the whole Shawn Michaels feet each other. Only only one of Shawn Michaels feet touched the floor. Yes, but what happens when both of Rock's feet touch the floor? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> it it gives a lot of good resonance to suddenly all the talk about Shawn Michaels before the match. Uh, makes a lot more sense. Um, the Big Show does come across looking a, li- a little bit stupid that he's already shown he can eliminate other people. Like his elimination of X-Pac is a sign that he knows how to put someone over the top rope. So mm-hmm. the fact that he decided the best way to eliminate the rock was to run at the ropes um, doesn't adhere much to his intelligence. However, to be fair, four years later, he would learn from it and try and do it the other way around. And he'd still fucking lose. So it seems like the big show will always be the bridesmaid. But cause like they had a, I think I mentioned this before, they had a triple threat kind of match between him, Big Show, Rock and Kane, which came one, but the Rock actually went out first and Big Show probably launched them out of the ring. So what makes you so what makes me wonder is like, why didn't you just do that again? You seemingly know how to do it. You know how to eliminate the rock. The rock's kinda of light compared to you. So how the hell did you not do that? And Rock wins. The Rumble in total is listed as going 51 minutes 54. So test 26 The match, minutes. not the Rock. The match. Yeah, the match, yeah. The Rock wins match, which lasted 51 minutes 54. And like, so I kind of make test Ironman performance seem a bit more impressive by comparison. But, and also Rikishi got the most eliminations with eight. But yeah, the Rock wins, which I think everybody really wanted to see. And then what I really think I don't think should have happened is, buddy, they should have said this is a dark match, but but like the Rock going to cut a promo, like the Rock's going to WrestleMania, and then the Big Show coming out throwing in a temper tantrum. <laughs> you will not boo me. You are not going to the Royal Rumble or to WrestleMania. Rah, rah, rah. It just, like that's basically the point where. Um, any credibility that Big Show could have had as a tremendous babyface kind of just died an unfortunate death because of how petulant his reaction was afterwards. But it it kind of, it does leave it on an interesting cliffhanger for oh make sure you tune in tomorrow on War where we'll see the reactions of and what will happen next and then you go into the WrestleMania build up which just becomes plain insanity. Um, but 
final two makes complete sense. Can't really argue against it. Um, I w- kind of would have liked to have seen Kane feature a little bit better. I mean, it says a little bit how underwhelming um, the, his impression could have been is the fact that he body slammed the big show and it wasn't even worth describing because <laughs> it, it was just, it just happened. Um, yeah, it was, it was so inconsequential. Yeah. I would it would be much more impressive. Imagine, well, imagine this. I'm going to throw this out. Throw this out. Imagine if when Kane had done the body slam, he'd actually done it Cesaro style and thrown Big Show out of the ring, and then you had it that he turned around and got eliminated by X Pac. So your final two was The Rock versus X Pac, and that's when The Rock had done that elimination turn where he froze him pretty much on his head. Guys, that's gold. Basically using I mean, it ex- works. Basically using export like Roman Reigns, basically leaving him to the final two, thinking, oh, God, not him, and ensuring that the pop for his elimination is even louder. Yeah, that's <laughs> very true. I mean, the, to be fair, the reaction for when the walk won um, was quite massive. It was the loudest that the crowd was for the match. But to be fair, it was a match where the crowd was slightly comatose for, I would say, easily 70% of it. Yeah. yeah. What we didn't get to see when the show went off air after Big Show Ryan back in the ring and Tim grabbing a mic and saying, I won this Rumble by a lot. <laughs> They're still counting the eliminations. <laughs> okay, Bail, bail-in eliminations. It doesn't count. The fans chatting down for the next entrance. Stop the count. <laughs> stop, the, stop. Stop. Uh, we, we will not allow this to go ahead. Etc. Oh, just I never, I never thought that politics would return to wrestling again. So well, we here we are. He was running for for office at this time, wasn't he? Can't think why he didn't get in. We've got Kane in it. He's a mayor now. Yeah, that is very true. Kane could have been in it. He would have been absolutely fantastic. Um, I would love to see him come out dressed as the mayor. Um, when he goes into a ring, or he could dress like Bob Backlund and then go through the rings after, go through the uh, crowd afterwards, so he can make sure he gets some extra nominations. Smart. You know, it, I really think I know Kane won, uh, eventually got into office, but I'm really sad he didn't go with the campaign slogan for me, and I won't Tim Sonia. <laughs> I mean, it could be effective. It could be. <laughs> Oh. So yeah, that was the the, the two thousand Royal Rumble match. It even go more than an over the hour limit that most Rumbles usually do. And I think if it is fair to say that at least fifty percent of it, at the very least, maybe even sixty percent of it, was quite dull. Yeah, I I would agree. I think um the I think. As I said, as I said earlier on, I think it's a good rumble for introducing you to the concept of it because you get to see the crowd interaction. You get to see that anything can happen. You can see that um, it's every man for themselves. And it's a really good way of being introduced to members of the roster. Cause, like this was this was uh, probably like three weeks when I uh, into me watching WWF for the first time when this pay-per-view happened. So it was actually a good opportunity for me to get to learn a lot of the wrestlers and get into the idea of the Royal Rumble and really enjoying it. Now, with l- watching back now, 
20 years later where I don't need to know all that information, it drags quite a bit in the middle. Like, up to Rikishi, it's a little bit slow. Riki- when Rikishi is in, he is actually great. He's one of the he's he's surprisingly one of the saving graces of the Rumble. Um, and then after Rikishi is sent out, it's very meh up until the Rock comes in, and so that means basically you've got like <coughs> what ten entrances where nothing really happens. So. That's that's basically 15 minutes of the rumble because it's 90 seconds, I think, that they were coming in um, where nothing's really happening and it drags because of it. Um, it comes to life a, life a little bit near the end and I think the final four were a good choice. Um, it's it's not it's not the it's not a great rumble. Um, it's not a rumble that you would go back and intentionally watch for pleasure if you weren't doing a podcast or something like that um but it's if you've never watched the one before it's worth a watch that that's my feeling in terms of it yeah don't disagree with that i mean it's uh, it's not it's not one of the classics by any stretch of the imagination there's nothing there's nothing crazy stand out about it it doesn't it's, it's like you like you say it's, it's a good introduction but if you've watched a rumble before Mm. Don't watch 2000. Don't watch 2000. It's it's yeah. It's very middle of the run of the rumbles. Like you've had some that are crap, um, and really bad, and then you've got some that are amazing. And this is just just is it just it's exists. Flat bang in the middle of those. Yeah, it's nothing special. It's nothing terrible. It's not offensive. It just exists. It feels yeah. like it feels a little bit like everyone's going through the motions, a little bit. Like, every year we have to do it, so we're going to do this year's Royal Rumble. We all know who's going to win. We just want to get to the end. Um, the only positive, I would say, about the fact that there's that the Rumble isn't that great is that the how good the two main matches on the, on the card, for me, the tables match and the street fight, almost gets even more intensified because they're not overshadowed by a Rumble. Which can sometimes yeah, that's, happen. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, it's probably been some some tremendous rumbles where you then end up forgetting some of the great matches that occurred on it. Like um, everyone talks about, for instance, the two thousand one Royal Rumble um, because that's an absolute classic. But then sometimes people will forget about the fact that there was a really cracking ladder match as well. You know, and uh, because it's only when you have a real deep think about it, you go, "Oh yeah, that match occurred." A good, a great rumble is fantastic because it's what you go there to see, but it sometimes overshadows the rest of the card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help this rumble that the following year. I think personally, well, the rumble, the whole pay per view is great, but the rumble match itself is, in my opinion, it's in my top three greatest rumble matches of all time. You know. Obviously, it's not number one. Number one is clearly the greatest word on. But I mean, it's got the word greatest in the title, which automatically makes it better. And plus, you know, it's got the it, you know, it, it, more, it, can't, it can't be the greatest because it wasn't won by the best in the world. So therefore, <laughs> it's a contradiction. If Shane McMahon had won it, it would be the greatest world rumble of all time. <laughs> and but I do agree that this is kind of an introductory kind of rumble. And then you can show people the following year's Rumble to show just how truly great a Rumble match can be. Mm. And 
Yeah, I think when people think of the 2000 Rumble, they think of Cactus versus Triple H more than they think of the Rumble. But yeah, it's not really a, it's not a one match though. Because you've also got the tables match, despite kind of some like miscues in that. The Taz match is still great. Uh, the two matches in the middle are shit. We we kind of covered that. And then the Miss Rumble contest is a thing we'd rather forget. I think that's a fairly good summary of the show. I think he's got it in one, to be fair. Yeah, I can't really disagree about any of that. But what it does do is it does whet the appetite for next year's Royal Rumble. Uh, well, 2001's Royal Rumble is what I mean. Not our, our next year, because at this rate, um, with um, lockdown and uh, social distancing, they may not be allowed 30 men in a Rumble. Um, but... <laughs> This is this is a good little wet wetter of the appetite. Two thousand ones is one of the best rumbles in my mind, and is almost perfect throughout. And I cannot wait for that one. Yeah, nudge, it's... nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a little while to go in the podcast before he gets to that, bro. So you'll have to be patient. Oh uh, uh, no, I've seen how quickly he's fucking going for them. He he could be there in a couple of months at this time. So. I'm all prepared, so <laughs> um, just think, just remember me, Scott, when you start getting uh, uh, more po- more famous with it, right? I'll 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 add it. I'll see you're on the list. You're on the list, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was this is a great show to talk about with you guys. Obviously, there's a lot to cover, which is why we had to do it, do it the way we. Way we did with two different parts, but this does kind of, like you said, whet the appetite not only for like the Rumble next year, but whets the appetite for 2000 in general because there's a lot of stellar pay per views this year. There are one or two pay per views that I don't think people talk about as much in 2000 that I personally love because I advise them. I King of the Ring, I, I think I, I think I love that more than most people do. WrestleMania, oof. not maybe not the greatest, but we'll get to that when we come to it. But uh, we've got a long road to get there involving a lot of different moving parts, so I look forward to covering that as the weeks go on. But I want to first thank both of my guests. Uh, thank you to Mike. Thank you very much, mate. It's been a pleasure. And uh, if you want to hear more from Mike and his thoughts on other theme songs and things to do with Billy Gunn, he's still using the at Russell on blogs name on Twitter. He hasn't moved on yet. He's still emotionally involved. It's, no, it's just easier to use than my personal one because I've got all the people I follow on there. It's just easier. <laughs> Leave the in all fairness, in, in, all, in all fairness, if you look through my tweets, you'll just find me tweeting companies saying, how do I contact your customer services? <laughs> that's oh, it. That's depressing. I know, mate. I know. Leave the memories alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> leave, um, leave, leave them content. It's um. Should I let people know where you're on Twitter and what you've got going on right now? Me or Mike? Um, don't I said to you. <laughs> oh, sorry, I missed that. <laughs> sorry. Um, so at the moment, um, I'm still writing for Cultured Vultures, uh, doing a bit of work on that. Um, I'm transitioning to doing a bit more film and TV as well. I might be featuring on a podcast or two to discuss film, hopefully in the future. Um and see how things are going but yes as always still at cultured vultures still right in and still getting my work out there excellent very good uh, as usual you can find rogue opinions at rogue underscore opinions we've got a lot of stuff going on right now 
obviously check out previous episodes of the Retrospect interview, you know, episodes that I've had these guys on before, as well as many other guests, and uh, I've got people lined up for the next couple of episodes. Uh, check out the finale of the Great British Bake Off podcast that uh, Carl and Reese uh, did. Uh, I don't watch Bake Off, but apparently a lot of people were annoyed about it recently, so if you were annoyed... I can, I can, I can vouch for that. I'm a big Bake Off fan. That doesn't yeah. surprise me, Mr. Mm-hmm. Assman. <laughs> he loves the soggy bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well played, well played. We've also got the survivor review just went up, and uh, as a result of losing our recent predictions, going to me, Jimmy, and Nathan will be doing a review. Potentially, we'll do it as a watch along of King of the Ring '95. Uh, trust me, oh, we're going to make that the greatest thing you've ever listened to. Honestly, we're going to take it on the chin, but. You can also find me, as I said, it's Scotland Cloud 1996. Check out Eat, Sleep, Super Light, some good stuff going up there. Uh, especially on the YouTube channel where I've got the series uh, called Book It, where the Fantasy Booking Tournament, the second round, is going up this Friday. Uh, and also Quiz Showdown series. We had Quiz Showdown 5, The Quiz Powers Explode, hosted by me. Uh, and our most recent, recently, uh, I think the Dale Survivors went out, so it's still up there on our YouTube channel. And, you know, Check stay tuned to that YouTube app because I believe towards the end of December a special kind of Christmas themed edition called Quiz Showdown Six Merry Christmas You Filthy Animals hosted by regular host Daniel will be up so there's a lot of stuff going on there. And just before I plug myself silly, I'll just say thank you to, to these guys and well I've not decided yet which which Billy Gumty I'm gonna play it with, but it's gonna be one of them. <laughs> Thank you for having us, Scott. It's been that. Thank you very much, buddy. Yeah, cheers, man.